Welcome to Leapers. I'm Jackie Allender, a sustainability specialist. I talk to businesses small and not so small about how they made the leap into being more sustainable. I'm on a farm track in southwest Victoria, and around me it's all gently rolling country and very lush green pastures. As you might have guessed, this is prime dairy country, and I'm here to talk with third-generation dairy farmer Simon Schultz. Simon has progressively taken over management of the family business, Schultz Organic Dairy, which, incidentally, is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Simon's also progressively introduced innovations that enabled the business to tackle its environmental impacts while also expanding its product range and improving its engagement with customers. So let's talk to Simon about what he's been doing. The, uh, the land has stayed roughly the same for the, for the last 15 or so years. Um, we've been running about 1,000 acres and, and we actually had uh, nearly 600 cattle. But uh, when I took on the farm... Two years ago, we reduced cow numbers uh, and with a focus really on, on more regenerative agriculture and less pressure on the farm. Uh, not that it was highly intensive or highly pressurised anyway, but um, yeah, the focus was really um, to sustain the milk supply through to the factory, through cheese making and butter making and all these new products that we keep dreaming up of um, to make sure that we got a good milk supply all year round for them. You've had a bit of a head start in terms of sustainability. How have organic farming principles translated into your land management here? You're absolutely right. I, I've been born and bred on a, a biodynamic and organic farm 50 years. Um, our organic principles haven't changed and aren't really intending to change. Probably our management practices will change. Um, we still don't believe in uh, synthetic fertilisers, insecticides, pesticides, um, GMO um, seeds and so forth. It's just really our management practices on what we do under the soil, what species we put into the soil, or how we uh, manage sustainably the, the soil, the microbes, and the, the environment we live in is, is probably the change, the big change that we see in the last five years and particularly in the next 50. The management practice that I was talking about really is, is focusing less on monoculture, less on just a, a traditional rye and clover grasses that my grandfather and my father would have predominantly been putting in um, and not doing summer crops that are just a simple single species, really focusing on multi-species. So we're looking at, at when you've got diversity, you've got deeper rooting with shallower rooting product uh, plants, you've got opening up the soil structure, hopefully absorbing more moisture. If you can have more moisture, particularly in our drier climates, your pastures can stay greener for longer, therefore feeding the cows fresh grass, green grass, which is far cheaper than bought-in feed. And happier cows. Happier cows. Well, the, the aim with the multi-species is really if, you've, if they've got a palate of a whole range of different species they can they munch on, they, they might choose things that suit them at a particular time. Therefore, their health is better. And if their health is, is optimum, then they're a happier animal. And in terms of the way you've been operating the, the manufacturing business, you took on a particular sustainability challenge, didn't you? Can you talk about what it was, why you decided to, to go down that route and, and what you've been doing. So the project that you, you're referring to is our milking glass, which we launched uh, four to five years ago now. The catalyst, I suppose, was that we were, at that point in time, we were 45 years in organic dairy farming and biodynamic farming. Our sustainable credentials were existing on our farm or existing in the pasture and the animals, but not in our manufacturing. 
uh, we were still contributing significantly to single-use plastics and our energy cycles there. And so the milking glass was something that we felt allowed a circular uh, economy to, to, to establish with the returnable glass bottles. It's all about these little cir- circular economies, circular cycles um, that we wanted to establish. And so the glass bottle campaign that we, we put forward has been a su- huge success. You know, we're the first in the country to do it for, since the 50s or the 60s. And um, it's uh, really allowed us to consider our environmental impact on the manufacturing side of things, not just the farming. And how did you go about that? It was pretty challenging to set up? It was certainly challenging. There was nothing in Australia that, no one in Australia that did it, and certainly on a commercial scale. So we had to travel. I travelled to the US initially and did some research in New Zealand and in Europe um, to see what was needed and what infrastructure was needed there and what learnings I could take from those markets. Uh, I came back and said, oh, and thought to my team, it's pretty expensive. Um, And, you know, it's something new to Australia. Will Australians buy it? Uh, And so those two things, expensive equipment, uh, new to Australia, and will consumers want to purchase milking glass uh, at a higher cost? A crowdfunding campaign was was the easy way to, A, get infrastructure money for it, also B, garner the um, consumer's interest in it, um, and both of those um, were solved by that, that, one, that one funding opportunity with crowdfunding. Yes. So tell us about how you went about, uh, about the crowdfunding. So um, our first initial foray was to, um, before we did the crowdfunding, was to offer, our, offer a very, just through our farmer's markets, a milk and glass option. It was a round bottle, off the shelf, single use bottle, but we, we managed to re- return it and reuse it and manually wash it. So that was the first stage, getting a bit of interest there. The whole process was a whirlwind at the time, um, so we really, we really needed to get a broader sense, not just from our loyal farmers market customers. We wanted to get a broader sense from the broader market, perhaps people that weren't Schultz customers to to begin with, to see if they'd look at purchasing it. And that's where the crowdfunding really kicked in. You know, a huge emphasis was put on on the marketing side of it because that's we really wanted to bring consumers along with it, and that's the whole point I think of crowdfunding is to bring the consumers along along with you on the journey that you're on um, because that, that's something that we've always tried to do really well is try to have that connection with our consumers, with our, with our friends who drink our milk and eat our yogurts, uh, which is why we still do the farmer's markets today is to, to continue that connection with them um, so that when we have new products and new ideas and new concepts, we can go directly to them and ask them, are they interested in, in what, we're, what we're offering uh, or not, which, you know, leads into what we're doing now, which is our milk in a keg and self-serve system, which is really just an extension of our milk in glass, but shortening that loop of um, the returnable glasses and and, and the kegs themselves, shortening that loop, making it more efficient. Tell us about the uh, the milk in keg, because you've only just started that. Is that right? A bit like our glass. We actually had been doing a keg pre-2020, but when the pandemic came along, we sort of really pushed it aside and said it was a little bit too difficult at that point in time. Um, food service was really suffering and the keg system was really focused mostly on food service, not not um, retail. But then a partnership uh, with the other way was introduced to us by one of our retail customers who's been a long-term supporter of Schultz. And um, I was about to go on some long overdue leave and I said within about five, ten minutes of meeting the guys there from the other way. Yes, I'll do it. I'll see you in three months and we'll launch. <laughs> Tell me a bit about 
the other way and how that whole system works. What sure. do what happens? Uh, a consumer comes in and buys your milk in a in a glass bottle, and then what's the expectation? What happens? Yeah, so I, sp- I suppose the first point is the limitation with our glass bottles is that the um, there's a the quite a long loop. Um, so we fill a glass bottle, it goes through our distribution centre all the way to Melbourne to the retailer, sits on a shelf there. Uh, consumer drinks the milk, brings it back, and then it comes all the way back to Timo. And so it's quite a long cycle. With this cycle, we essentially have that relationship with the retailer and the, and the cafe. Um, and basically a keg, we're delivering to the retailer two or three times a week. And so that keg's really fast interchange between us and them refilling and, and decanning and, and refilling again and washing. Um, whereas the consumer can doesn't have to bring in a Schultz bottle. They can bring in a stainless bottle. They can bring in a, uh, hopefully not a plastic bottle, but they can bring in a plastic bottle they can fill a two-litre bottle, they can fill a three-litre bottle. It doesn't have to be a one-litre bottle. And it gives consumers a greater choice or less less um, points of uh, restriction of on, on purchasing um, by giving them the opportunity to, to fill whatever vessel they want as long as they wash it themselves. And so in the shop, what the consumer will see is uh, simply a, um, a little stand with a, you know, with a tap. Is that right? That's right, yeah. It'll be an underbench fridge. Um, with a tap coming out, a bit like a um, you know, a beer keg, a beer dispenser of the pub, um, and they will be able to decant directly themselves. With both the milk on tap and the um, and the milk in glass, how has that um, enhanced your sales? We we're a little worried, I guess, when we when we first did the, the milk in glass, and we were and the same concern was with the um, the kegs. Was would this product cannibalise our other lines, our plastics, and we kind of, in part, we'd kind of hoped it would. We would kind of hope that people would make that transition and therefore we could invest in more automation to make it more efficient for us. But it hasn't. It's really opened up our brand to new consumers, people who are really conscious on not just a sustainable farm like all our consumers are, but also sustainable business practices in, in plastic use, or packaging use and, and single use and the carbon footprint that each business has. How much plastic do you estimate that you've saved over this time? Um, I haven't done the calculation on the kegs yet. It's only been a handful of months, um, but we've done over 30 tonne of plastic just in the milk and glass. Over this time, what would you see as being your biggest challenge in increasing your sustainability on uh, on the farm and, and, and in the manufacturing facility? The biggest limitation, I think, is always capital. Um you know, which is why we did our crowdfunding. Capital is, you know, agriculture is exceptionally expensive to get into um, and is exceptionally expensive to do change quickly. I'm two years into my tenure on the farm as the, the farm owner now, um, once my father retired. And while we've done some change and, and it's expensive change, it's really a, a you know, a 10 year, 10 year plan to really cement the dreams that we've had in the last few years to, to really realise them in, in, in five to ten years' time. But we're making leaps and strides. My father came across the farm the other, the other day and he said, Simon, there's never been so much grass on this farm. Um, you know, and that's a great encouragement to say, well, you know, I'm doing the right thing. You know, we're, we're lengthening our rotations. We're, we're doing multi-species. We're changing our planting setups. We're doing honey. We're bringing in the bees and the native, the native bees and the, and the European bees and so forth. So it's all this diversity is... is um, it's fun to see, but it, it takes time and it is expensive. And if you could go back to when you first started all this, what advice would you give yourself? For me, it's it's actually about team, about people. Um, at the end of the day, we're doing this for 
our relationships, so be it our family relationships, our, our relationships with our consumers, our relationships with our staff, um, getting, getting the right people around you um, in any business and having the right people that will lift you up and will drive you forward and will enable you to do the things you want to do. Um, if I was saying that to a younger Simon, I'd say, make sure you always choose the right person. Don't just, don't just put someone in a role because you need them there. Choose the right person. And just on that, can you tell me a little bit more about the way in which your sustainability ethos uh, extends to your your people? Culture is king for us, um, and that's something that uh, I believe society is expecting now: is is, is good culture, good work life. Um, one thing that I've really tried to bring, especially in the last five or six years, as I've matured as a business owner, is to to work on work life balance. Um, you know, we get into business to be financially independent, to to have to be able to choose as a business owner to choose what you want to do. Um, but we often don't have our own work life balance, and so that's been a critical focus the last five years um, for me and my team. So most of my team will have a long weekend every single weekend. Um, we don't do shift work. We don't work over the weekends in the factory. The farm's a different story. It needs to run twenty four seven. But we make sure our team take time off. And when we recognise that we're not doing that, we need we know that we need to change change our systems to allow that. So, having a work life balance and building that culture and that that um, pride in what they do is is critical. And that comes also back to choosing the right people. It's um it's really that choosing the right people and creating that culture where people enjoy them enjoy their work and um, have that work life balance so they can go home and have their own passions and interests. And most of your staff, you were saying, work a four-day week. Is that right? Has that contributed to being able to retain and um, keep your staff over time? I'd like to think so, but the, the last last three years have been incredibly difficult. So, yeah, we've certainly struggled like everyone has the last few years, but we think we have the right culture and we have the right um, work-life balance that um, does attract good people that do want to stick around. Thanks so much for your time, Simon. My pleasure. As we tour the farm, Simon tells me about the trial and error process for establishing new pasture species and amping up the focus on regenerative agriculture. It's taken some time. He's also got plans to build a new expanded dairy factory which will be powered by renewable energy. It'll enable Schultz to better accommodate its growing product range. And he's also working on the other emissions problem, methane from the cows. Simon's connected with the local campus of Deakin University with the aim of being part of a trial of seaweed supplement to reduce cattle methane emissions. It's clear that each little step is taking him closer to his goal of a more sustainable future for the business, his family and community and the planet. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the discussion and maybe it got you thinking about how you could adapt your business to have a more positive impact. For more details about anything you've heard, go to leapsustainability.com.au where you can also see how I can help your business put sustainability into practice. And please leave a review or let me know if there's a topic or business sector you'd like me to cover. See you next time on Leapers.